Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. Right, it's time for another episode of Radio J-Dub. Radio J-Dub, the audio incarnation of the most interesting independent sports blog out there. Uh, I said it before, I'll say it again. One of the reasons that makes us the most interesting is the great contributors and partners that we have at Dubsism. The list is long and distinguished. We've got uh, Dubsism's own JFI. We've got Chris Humphreys over at Sports Chump, uh, as always Ryan Meehan at First Order Historians, the home of the J-Dub Gambling Challenge, which um, we're actually recording this podcast a day early this week. I'm trying to drop it before the NFL action starts on Sunday. That means I have to do it before that uh, Buffalo-Jacksonville game. We'll all be glued to our tablets streaming via Yahoo. Um... Nothing against the fine people at Yahoo, but I smell a disaster coming over this. Um, I had a conversation with JFI about this, and he's he's with me. He's like, you know, every every year, the first week of the fantasy football season, Yahoo's fantasy page has managed to crash. Uh, I am, for reasons I don't want to get into, somewhat married to Yahoo Mail. It crashes on me constantly. I don't know how they're going to get away with... Uh, with this, but uh, when you're going into territories where nobody's really gone before, somebody's got to be the pioneer, and somebody's got to go out there and take the slings and arrows for it. Uh, without going into that aside, again, you know, the the great people that we work with here all the time at, uh, at Dubsism, uh, Chris Smith from Obscure Athletes, he's uh, firing his podcast uh, back up. Check that out at ObscureAthletes.com having some loose talks about maybe doing some work together in the future. Any, any way you slice it, uh, go look at the blog roll on Dubsism. Every, every blog out there is worth your read. It's, it's all about supporting the independent sports blogger, and it's all about giving the little guy a voice in the world of sports that doesn't come from the worldwide sludge pump known as ESPN. Having said that, let's tell some stories. And now, despite numerous requests, here's Johnny!
uh, in the open, I made mention of the uh, Buffalo um, situation, and uh, I have a friend of mine that's um, listening to the recording of this podcast, and I'm trying to get him to dial in as a uh, as a caller, and he's not terribly interested in doing that um, for reasons I won't get into. Here's the thing. He's telling me that Buffalo, Jacksonville, you know, he, and he's, he's making a lot of snarky comments. He's a Jets fan. He's making a lot of snarky comments about, well, this is why they put on two teams that nobody gives a shit about, because if it crashes, nobody cares, and, you know, kind of can't really argue with that. That brings me to the topic for the monologue today, and that is... It's one thing to be a fan of your team, and it's one thing to have devotion and support of your team, but it's completely something else to be a homer. If you don't know what a homer is, a homer is a guy that believes in his team above all else, and that means that you know, fans of other teams are almost heretics. And if you say something negative about a homer's team, they will treat you like a heretic. Um, I got a lot of stuff in this last week from some Patriots fans over something that I said in last week's podcast in the uh, episode where I said that I was wrong about a lot of things. And one of the things that I said I was wrong about was the New York Jets. And all I said was, they don't suck. Okay? I, I had predicted in a preseason piece that the New York football Jets were going to be a three-win dumpster fire because there was going to be this hangover effect after the Rex Ryan era. Well, that's not happening. Um... I didn't say the Jets were going to win the Super Bowl. I didn't even say the Jets were a playoff team. But Patriots homers, all they heard was the Jets are going to win the AFC East over the Patriots. I mean, I printed out some of the emails I got here. They're fucking ridiculous. Um, if anybody can point out the moment where I said the Jets will win the AFC East over the Patriots, I uh, you know, tell me, timestamp-wise, exactly where in the podcast that is, because I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about homerism. I mean, just a little bit of um, foreshadowing. If you're a Patriots homer, you're probably really not going to like something I'm going to say later in the podcast, but I don't care. So I have a podcast so I can say stuff that the people at ESPN will never, ever fucking say. Back to the topic. Homerism. It's got to go away. It kills a lot of things that are great about being a sports fan. Like, you can't have a discussion with a homer. Um, because homers just, they, they, it's almost like when you piss off Bruce Banner. And also they puff up and turn green and, Bill Belichick's the greatest coach ever! Like, okay, you know, whatever. If that's what you want to believe and that's your guy, that's great. You know, but you can't just, you know, gorilla stomp people and have an opposing viewpoint. Um, and I know this, I mean, I'm an Eagles fan. I mean, we fucking throw batteries at people and boo Santa. So I understand that there's a little bit of 
of irony in an Eagles fan talking about, you know, we need to bring a bit of a return of civility to, to sports fandom. Um, and even a greater note of self-awareness is that, I mean, I'll freely admit, there is one topic when you talk about the Eagles that, that are definitely fighting words with me, and that is you can't talk shit about Dick Vermeil. I'm an old-school Eagle fan talking shit about Dick Vermeil as an express train to getting punched in the mouth. I know that about myself. And there are people out there who know me who deliberately try and rattle my cage by, you know, you know, every once in a while I'll get, you know, a, a, a Dick, official Dick Vermeil crying towel in the mail or some sort of shit like that. And, you know, and even the good-natured stuff is okay. I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, when you get these single-tweet egg avatar guys on Twitter and, you know, they, you know, their idea of witty repartee is to tell you that, you know, you, you know, imply that you have sex with your mother or, you know, that kind of shit. That's what's got to go away. Um, you know, I understand there's a lot of internet bravery in all of this, and, you know, and it, it gives you a sense of power to sit behind your monitor in your mother's basement and call me an asshole because I said that your team, you know, isn't, you know, the, the greatest thing on the face of the earth. And I get that. And, and I'm smart enough to know that when you go out and you make your opinions public, especially if they're things that some people aren't going to like, that you're going to get some shit for it. I would be very naive and, and frankly stupid to not know that. But the problem is that homerism crosses a line. And, and when you take it to its extreme, when you take the mentality of it to its extreme, this is how guys wearing the visiting team's jersey at a ballpark get beaten up. And again, being an Eagles fan, I understand the, the irony of pointing that out. But this is where we got to get away from. English, English football went through this in the 80s. And after, after the riot at Heisel, where you know, a whole bunch of innocent people got killed, um, they realized that, that they had to do something about the violence in the crowds. And I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. We're headed for that in this country. And it all stems from homerism going across a line. Like I said, there is no, there's no one thing wrong with being a fan. And there's no one thing wrong with supporting your team and showing your loyalty and showing, you know, showing your support and being vocal about it if need be. But when you're at the ballpark and you're throwing beer on people or you're cussing people out or, you know, God forbid you're one of those guys that thinks it's okay to go out and put your hands on somebody in the parking lot, that's where you've crossed the line. And that's what we need to get away from in American sports because I'm telling you, there's a Heisel coming in this country, and it's going to be it's going to be terrible when it happens. If you're not familiar with Heisel, Heisel was a riot that happened in Belgium in 1985 in a European League Cup final between Liverpool and Juventus. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's like the European version of the Super Bowl. It's a major sporting event. They hold it at a neutral site. They held it at a stadium in Brussels that was not really equipped. To handle the crowds, they, they meaning the Belgian police, they weren't really ready for what happened, 
various and sundry accounts about how it got started. The long story short is that Liverpool fans charged the Juventus fans. They ripped parts of the stadium off in terms of like fences and rails and that sort of stuff and used those as weapons and killed somewhere around 40 people uh, in that incident. And Americans can say, well, you know, that, that's, that happens there, that doesn't happen here. It's going to happen here. Um, in fact, there was just a story not too long ago of a guy uh, getting shot outside the uh, Cowboys-Patriots game in Dallas. You know, that's a wake-up call, people. Um, and don't, don't be the guy that, that decides to use this... Uh, to, to come hit me with, with a, a rant about gun violence in this country. Gun violence is just another form of violence. Violence is our problem. And I'm not going to get into a big thing about, you know, the socioeconomic, blah, 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 whatever $5 academic words you want to use to describe where we're at in this country with this problem. But we got to get back to simple respect and civility. Um... A theme you're going to hear throughout this podcast is just, let's get back to basics. When it comes to homerism, when it comes to sports fandom, you know, Rodney King, at the time he said it, I thought was one of the most hackneyed lines I've ever heard in my life, but let's people, we're all sports fans. Can't we all just get along? I would really love to hear theories or thoughts on why homerism gets out of hand and those are going to come from you. Um, the Dubsism listeners, the Radio J Dub people, the audience is growing. There's smart people out there. Some of the comments that I get, you know, there's, there's some people who really understand what I'm talking about when we get into topics like this. Throw us a comment. Uh, throw us a comment at the blog, uh, dubsism.wordpress.com. Dubsism at yahoo.com uh, is our email address. Um, we're on the Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're out there, you know where we are. D-U-B-S-I-S-M, it's a first page search result on Google. A lot of the stuff I talk about on this podcast is just kind of me ranting, and it's just kind of me offering my opinions, or when I have guests on, I always love to have guests. Again, you know where to find me if you are interested in coming on and doing a, doing a podcast about how we can bring back civility into uh, the world of being a sports fan. I would be all about that. Again, this isn't a topic where I'm just kind of floating some bullshit out there. This is a topic where we really got to take a look at this before something really ugly happens in this country. Now, having said that, uh, like I said, I'm recording this podcast a day early to timestamp it. Uh, that'll become important later why I'm, what time I'm recording this. Um, watching the Clemson-Miami game on the uh, television in my office. It's 14 nothing. It tells you that it's right around 1 o'clock Eastern time. It takes a while to produce these podcasts and drop them, like I've said before. But later on the podcast, I'm going to talk about something about the NFL, and I want it very clear that I'm saying this before the NFL action started on Sunday. Uh, we'll get back to that in a bit. In the next segment, I just talked about how we can be fans and enjoy sports. Well, one of the best sporting events anywhere in this country um, is set to start next week. We just set our 
opponents for it last night, and that would be the Fall Classic, the World Series. Take a little break, come back, and take a look at why I think New York Mets versus Kansas City Royals could make one of the most interesting series we've seen in a while. Take a little break, back in a bit. Hey, Billy! Hey, Joey! Come on in! There's plenty of room! Sorry, not you, Homer. Why not? But you let in Homer Glumplet. <laughs> it says no Homers. We're allowed to have one. Welcome to the Simpson Residence, or Casa de Simpson, as I call it. <laughs> yeah, what did you want to see me about, Simpson? This better be important. It is, it is. But first, let me introduce you to my family. My perfect family. This is my wife, Marge. Hello. And our beautiful baby... My daughter, Lisa, IQ 156. Hi. See? And my son, Bart. He owns a factory downtown. How do you do? Uh, look, Homer, I I'm late for my night job at the foundry, so if you don't mind telling me... Good heavens! Th th this is a palace! How, can, how in the world can you afford to live in a house like this, Simpson? I don't know. Don't ask me how the economy works. Yeah, but look at the size of this place. I, I, I live in a single room above a bowling alley and below another bowling alley. Wow. I, I'm sorry, isn't that... Yeah, that's me, all right. And the guy standing next to me is President Gerald Ford. And this is when I was on tour with the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, and here's a picture of me in outer space. You. Went into outer space. You. Sure. You've never been? Would you like to see my Grammy Award? No, I wouldn't. God, I've had to work hard every day of my life. And what do I have to show for it? This briefcase and this haircut. And what do you have to show for your lifetime of sloth and ignorance? What? Everything. A dream house, two cars, a beautiful wife, a son who owns a factory, fancy clothes and lobsters for dinner. And do you deserve any of it? No. What are you saying? <laughs> I'm saying you're what's wrong with America, Simpson. You coast through life, you do as little as possible, and you leech off decent, hard-working people, like me. <laughs> if you lived in any other country in the world, you'd have starved to death long ago. He's got you there, Dad. You're a fraud. A, a total fraud. Behold! The power plant of the future today! No. Too cold and sterile. Where's the heart? But it really generates power. It's lighting this room right now. You lose. Get off my property. Let's have the next child. Look, everybody. Simpson's in a contest with children. Hey, shh. You're making us miss the contest. Could you explain your model, young man? What's to explain? He's an idiot. Pipe down. Well, basically, I just copied the plant we have now. Hmm. Then I added some fins to lower wind resistance, and this racing stripe here I feel is pretty sharp. Agreed. First prize. What? Way to go, Homer. You're number one, Homer. But it, this was a contest for children. Yeah, and Homer beat their brains out. Woo! I can't stand it any longer. This whole plant is insane. Insane, I tell you. It, Worthless employee, just like Homer Simpson. Give me a promotion. 
I eat like a slob, but nobody minds. I'm peeing on the seat. Give me a raise. Now I'm returning to work without washing my hands. But it doesn't matter because I'm Homer Simpson. I don't need to do my work because someone else will do it for me. Do, do, do. Hey, you okay, Grimey? I'm better than okay. I'm Homer Simpson. <laughs> you wish. Oh, hi, Mr. Burns. I'm the worst worker in the world. Time to go home to my mansion and eat my lobster. What's this? Extremely high voltage. Well, I don't need safety gloves because I'm Homer Simpson. <laughs> like those old fight songs. Um, <laughs> Remember when all teams had a fight song? What, whatever happened to that? You know, now everything is stadium noise and, you know, baseball, you have guys with walk-up music and, yeah, you know, that's me just showing my age. I mean, you know, I'm Christ. I'm, I'm closer to 50 years old than I'd like to admit and I am a bit of an old school guy and, and it's the old school guy in me that loves the World Series. And to me, the World Series, you know, I don't care what gets popular or how trends go or what happens in uh, terms of the tastes of sport in this country. To me, the World Series is now and will always be the quintessential American sporting event because baseball, whether anybody wants to admit it or not, has really remained part of the American culture. There's so many baseball terms that are locked in our everyday language. 
you know, you don't have to know anything about baseball to know that, you know, going up and asking a girl for a date and getting shot down meant you struck out. And, of course, the other end of the equation, you got you hit a home run, you know. Um, other sports just, you know, never are going to get there. You're you're never going to you're never going to have a point in this country where you had something that was a huge success and you say, "Man, I hit that penalty shot." Um it's not going to happen. So, I mean that rant aside, let's let's get back to just this World Series. Uh last night the Kansas City Royals uh took down the Toronto Blue Jays four games to two to seal a date with the New York Mets. Game one, Tuesday night, 8 o'clock Eastern time. Starting pitchers and all that sort of thing. Uh, you can go get those sorts of things from another real sports outlet. What I want to talk about here is if you look at this World Series in terms of a back-to-basics theme like I, I talked about, Everybody knows the Mets can pitch, and everybody knows that the Mets, that's the strength of their team, is that every day they're going to run out a number one pitcher that you got to deal with. And the Kansas City Royals, they're not the big sexy bats that the Blue Jays had, and I think a lot of people would think that would be the matchup I would be looking for in terms of a back-to-basics sort of World Series is let's let's see pitching up against, you know, the big sluggers and, and let's let's see what happens. Like, eh. kind of already saw that. I kind of already saw that when the Mets mowed down the Cubs. And, you know, the Mets didn't even pitch particularly well in that championship series against Chicago, but... They certainly had Chicago on their heels. Um, other than the one game where the wind was blowing out. Um, but, you know, when, when, I see, when I see, you know, game four and, and, the, and the Cubs are wasting opportunities with runners on, you know, bases loaded, nobody out, and you're watching guys roll over on breaking pitches and just, you know, dribble them into the infield. And they were pressing. They knew that they were going to be squeezed to score runs against that pitching staff. It got in their head, and that's where I always said that playoff inexperience would, would come into play. Well, why am, I, why am I talking about that? Because as you go into this series, now all of a sudden it's, it's the Royals that have the playoff experience. I mean, they took the World Series to a Game 7 last year. So they understand what, what's coming in terms of this moment. And I don't think the Mets have really come to terms with that yet. The Mets showed such a level of confidence in that series against the Cubs that they really looked like they understand right where they are and they understand what's coming. And, and I don't think they do. Um, yeah, that was a big series with, with the Cubs. But you got to understand, when you get to the World Series – Television viewership doubles, and it becomes a much, much larger event. I mean, championship series is one thing, but all the casual fans come out when it's the World Series. So, what can the casual fan expect to see when they tune in for Game 1 on Tuesday night? Well, we've already kind of alluded to the main theme. It's going to be the pitching of the uh, Mets against the... I don't want to use playoff experience as their main weapon, but it's going to be a big part of this. 
the main weapon that the Kansas City Royals are bringing into this series is that they are the definition of the term opportunistic. You can't make mistakes with the Royals. If you if you hit a guy and put him on first base, he's going to score. If you drop a fly ball and give them an extra out, they're going to hurt you. If you don't turn double plays, they're going to kill you with that. You you have to execute against the Royals. If you give them an inch, they'll take the entire state of Missouri. And the other thing that's really fun about the Royals is their approach at the plate, which is what I really want to see against the Mets pitching, and that is the Royals are really good at taking what you give them. They're not swinging out of their shoes trying to hit 500-foot home runs unless you leave a mistake pitch up there and allow them to do it. They're that weird combination offensively of a team that you can't walk them, but you can't strike them out either. In other words, they're very good at being selective, hitting pitches that you know are offered, and taking taking what they're given. And that is, you know, you'll watch the Royals. They're very good at you know a little slapper the other way for a base hit. You hang a curveball, they'll rattle it into the gap for a double. Um, to me, one of the most impressive things I saw in the American League Championship scene is, is series was when Eric Hosmer stole second base and got them out of a potential double play situation, which led to the Royals uh, scoring about three runs in that inning. And that was one of the moments where you could tell, okay, the, this Royals team is going to be tough for whoever they face, um, despite what the makeup of the other team is, you know. Um, the thing that makes the Mets interesting is if you look at this just strictly from a Royals point of view, the Royals have not faced a team like the Mets yet in the sense that here's a team that's going to run a number one guy out at you every night. DeGrom is a legit number one guy. Um, DeGrom is your Cy Young Award winner in my book, and if it weren't for Jake Arrieta. Uh, Syndergaard is a number one guy. Um, Matt Harvey, when healthy, is a number one guy. Steven Matz, he's not a number one guy yet. He's like a fetal number one guy. He's still got some time in the pitcher's womb to develop, but in another year or two, he's going to be the real deal. Uh, the wild card, the wild card in all of this in terms of the Mets and their pitching staff is Bartolo Colon. I can make an argument that, that Bartolo Colon might be the most valuable player on the Mets. And I like, a lot of people are going to say, well, what about Daniel Murphy? Okay, he got hot at the right time, but he's one of the streakiest hitters out there. Um, Bartolo Colon adds something to the Mets that I've been talking about with the Royals, and that is experience. Bartolo Colon is an old war horse, and he's been down this road a couple of times. Um, you know, he's been he's been in plenty of playoff baseball. I have this I have this scene in my head. You remember the old movie Major League? Uh, there's Rick Wild Thing Vaughn and the old pitcher Eddie Harris, and they're sitting in the locker room, and Harris takes off his shirt. And he's got all this stuff all over his chest, and you know, Rick Vaughn says, uh, what's all that stuff all over your chest? He's like, oh, you know, I got this. 
a little Vaseline, a little Vagisil, you know, like, you put all that shit on the ball? He's like, well, yeah, because I don't have an arm like yours. And I, and I see Bartolo Colon as the Mets version of Eddie Harris. You know, I don't know what he's got smeared on his chest. Could be bean dip. I don't know. I don't care. He's the he's the old veteran guy that says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we got to win this. And, and And the fact that you know, he's been been versatile. A lot of guys pitching at 43 years old would be, you know, demanding some sort of specialty role. I'm that guy that comes in to get out lefties. I'm that guy that does this. I'm that guy that does that. Bartolo Colon's done anything that's asked of him. He's pitched. He's pitched in relief. He doesn't have a problem coming out of the bullpen. He just wants to play ball. Um, I was never a big Bartolo Colon fan younger in his career. Uh, now, uh, watching him and what he means to that team, it's kind of hard not to be a fan of his. Some of the things that, that are really, really curious about Bartolo Colon, you look at him at 43 years old and 300 pounds, and, and you know, he's just he's an old guy. And you look at him amongst all those young fireballers, and here's a guy, I mean, Bartolo Colon is not blowing anybody away with his fastball anymore. I mean, you know, on a good day, he's topping out 87, 88. I mean, he's, he's, pitching, on, he's pitching on location. He's pitching on, you know, making you guess what's coming next. You know, it's, it's the crafty, the, the, the quintessential crafty veteran. But what's weird is when, when Colon pitches, Guys that don't overpower you with their fastball usually don't throw it as much as he does. I mean, just just count when when Cologne pitches, and you're going to discover that he's getting guys out on that 85 mile an hour fastball. I mean, he's throw eight out of ten pitches are that fastball. I mean, he does not throw a lot of off speed pitches. And of course, you know the wise guy out there is going, "Well, his fastball is an off speed pitch." No, no, it's not. Because you come into a ball game, especially in relief, and you come in behind a guy like Degrom or Syndergaard, who's you know nudging a hundred miles, hundred miles an hour, and then you come out there and show them a seventy-two mile an hour curveball. You're going to watch guys screw themselves into the ground trying to hit that. Um. That plus, you know, like I said, the veteran experience. I, I think uh, the role that Bartolo Colon plays on the Mets just really, really can't be understated. And another thing, another thing. As long as I'm talking about the Mets, and this this story hits a little bit close to home for me because, as an Angels fan, I've dealt with young Terry Collins as a manager, and I hated him. I thought he was easily one of the worst guys ever to be a major league manager at the time and the Terry Collins that was the Terry Collins of 20 years ago I still believe that in but I've noticed a change and I noticed a big change Terry Collins was the kind of guy that as a manager if he had a conflict with a player or, you know, things weren't going right, he was the kind of guy that would say snarky shit to the media. He's the kind of guy that holds grudges. He's the kind of guy that makes sure that you know that you aren't his sort of guy. Um, and I really thought, I really thought that that was going to turn into an ugly situation with the um, Matt Harvey affair, where all of a sudden now he's got an agent that's talking about limiting his pitch count and 
you know, that he's getting hurt, and then there's this, you know, stuff in the media about how he's being handled, and the old Terry Collins would have just reacted so, so badly to that. But this generation, uh, Terry Collins, um, he handled it just fine. I mean, he ignored the baiting media questions up until the point where he just really couldn't ignore them anymore. And he said, yeah, I'm not happy about the way I've had to deal with Mark, Matt Harvey, but we're in a playoff series. Let's move on and go play some baseball. When I saw that, I went, wow, that is that is not the Terry Collins that uh, I remember getting beamed in the face by a uh, batting helmet thrown by Pedro Martinez. Uh, that is why, after having said all of this, when you talk about the World Series and you talk about baseball and you break all these things down and, you know, here's what I think the matchups are going to entail, obviously I kind of have to tell you what I'm thinking happens in this series. Um, I got to go, I got to go Mets in six. Uh, I, I just, I can't, I can't not go with the pitching. I understand that I'm a guy who rails about playoff experience and how important that matters, and I think Bartolo Colon is the guy that, that takes care of that for the Mets. I also think the Mets are coming in supremely confident. I think they believe they can they can out-pitch anybody, and they, at this point they probably can. Um... The difference will be if Kansas City, if the Mets don't pitch like they're supposed to, if the Mets don't go out and make themselves opportunities to win this win this series. Um, if you start getting the wild pitches, you know, you start getting pitchers that don't get out of the third inning and it turns into a bullpen contest, um, that's where Kansas City has an advantage. Kansas City's got the better bullpen than the Mets. The Mets' bullpen's okay, but... If you're behind the Royals and it's the sixth inning, you're looking at three guys in a row coming in that can all light up the radar gun. And if they're on, your scoring opportunities are pretty much over. Again, disagree with me? Let me know. Got a comment section? Got an email address? Got a Twitter feed? Hit me up. Take a little break talk a little bit more baseball in the next segment. Uh, the L.A. Dodgers and manager Don Mattingly recently agreed to part ways. And, of course, this is a podcast, so you can't see that I'm doing the little air quotes thing with my fingers because mutually agreed to part ways. That's just five pounds of bullshit. Uh, again, next segment, mutually parting ways and what a lie that is. Back in a bit. It was George Brett when we won it. So long time since we had such fun. But when I woke up this morning, the team was in a playoff run. The sky was royal blue, runners racing everywhere. He's catching baseballs, put his glove in the air. 
has been chilled and you just can't stop these guys Baseball's all around us, Hosmer says let's win it all The uh, National League Division Series was barely over, and the rumors were already swirling about Los Angeles Dodgers manager Don Mattingly was, was going to be fired because the powers that be at the L.A. Dodger front office were once again not happy with an early round exit by their, uh, by their local kind. So, not too long later, the word comes out, Mattingly's out. Him and the Dodgers have, quote-unquote, mutually agreed to part ways. Okay. Yeah, that's really never how this works. Um, the relationship between a baseball manager and the general manager and the ownership is really a lot like a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship that's, been, that's lasted more than a year or the early stages of a marriage like marriage within the first four years. And the reason why that is is because you're at that point where you've got skin in the relationship and so you don't really want to change it if you don't have to, but the relationship is not established enough like a post-five-year marriage where there's real pain involved in getting out of it. So... Mattingly's the manager in Los Angeles for, what, three, four years? I don't remember exactly. It's not important. The important part is, is that he's in the window where either you're going to get rid of the guy now or you got to make a commitment. And, you know, you're saying, well, your analogy, part of your analogy is, you know, the early stages of a marriage. Marriage is a commitment. Nah, not anymore in this country. It's not. Marriages don't matter until they've extended. They've existed for at least four years, or you've created children. You know, because no matter what you do, once you make a baby, you're stuck with that person and that baby for 20 years. Um, unless you're going to be one of those deadbeat dads that, you know, disappears from the face of the earth, and then, you know, guess what? We don't need you because you're a scumbag. Without going off on a tangent about that. So, here's Mattingly. Here's the front office of the Dodgers. Mattingly's gotten them into the playoffs three years in a row. Three years in a row, they haven't performed. So somebody in the front office is the one who says, hey, maybe it's time to get rid of Mattingly. Now, for some reason, that got out. That became um, a theme. Mattingly gets wind of it. Mattingly goes to the front office and says, uh, hey, what's this stuff about uh, you may not be happy with me? Uh, the front office says, well, we, you know, we're, we're not getting the results we would like. Mattingly says, well, if you want another guy, pay me to go away. Which is what happened. So, 
why is that not mutually agreeing to part ways? Well, it's not for one really big fact, and that is to get rid of Mattingly, they had to pay him off. This isn't like telling your live-in girlfriend to, to come over and get her toothbrush and a pair of socks she left there and get out. This, this involved money, okay? That's why I was talking about this, like, you know, being, you know, the early part of a marriage. Because what do most people do when they get married? They go out and buy a house. Well, if you're going to get divorced, now you got to split the house up. With Mattingly, it was more of a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Uh, when the new ownership group took over in Los Angeles, it, it was very clear that they were willing to date Mattingly, but they weren't going to marry him. That's why there was no, you know effort to extend his contract or even say publicly he's our guy I think that they knew that you know Mattingly had to come home with at least a trip to the World Series and failing that that he was going to be the fall guy um, fair or not that's exactly what happened because fair or not is it Mattingly's fault that his star pitcher does not perform in the playoffs. No. Fair or not? Is it Mattingly's fault that he's got a team full of guys like Yasiel Puig who aren't team guys? I mean, yeah, you can tell me all you want to about what a what an incredible athletic specimen Yasiel Puig is. Yasiel Puig, you know, costs you as many ball games as he wins you by the stupid shit that he pulls. Um, fair or not. Is it Mattingly's fault that, you know, Jock Peterson looked like the next great young Dodger player and after the All-Star break, he essentially disappeared? Fair or not. Is it is it Don Mattingly's fault that um, a lot of the star players on that team didn't perform when it was time to perform? Yeah, you can give me the thing about motivation, and you can give me the thing about, you know, you know, the captain of the ship, and everything that goes wrong is his fault. But you look at that Dodger club, and there's a lot of blame to go around. But can't fire the players, so expect to enjoy a year of Don Mattingly uh, on baseball tonight or wherever on ESPN. His contract runs out. He'll be in the majors again uh, 2017 when his contract's up. But let's talk about the Dodgers for a minute. And not, not the players, not the Dodgers on the field, but the Dodgers in the front office. This, this Stan Kasten-led um, management group. You can tell that there's a lot of pressure to win in that organization and it's coming from a couple of sources. First, we must never forget that the Dodgers um, the Dodgers married themselves to a regional cable network to the tune of $3 billion. And Los Angeles is a fair weather sports town. You know, the Lakers the Lakers have a couple of more years in the honeymoon period 
to get back to being a playoff team. If the Lakers spend five years in the lottery, they're going to lose a lot of their local fan base. Um, their global fan base will be just fine. But you might start seeing empty seats at, uh, at the Staples Center, and that's, that's unheard of for the Lakers. The Dodgers, same deal with the Dodgers. Dodger Stadium is full when the Dodgers are winning. When the Dodgers aren't winning, Dodger Stadium is full, except it's a different crowd. Um, the winning crowd is the white wine and sushi crowd from the west side and the beach towns. When the Dodgers aren't winning, it's a lot of guys who drink Tecate out of styrofoam beer coolers. And that's a problem because the, the Tecate guys, they don't, they don't pony up for the cable package to watch the Dodgers. The white wine and sushi guys do. If the cable companies start losing money on Dodger baseball, we're going to have a big revisiting of that $3 billion contract. Uh, the other part of this is, hard to ignore the fact that the main and hated rival of the Los Angeles Dodgers has won three World Series out of the last five. Okay? That's a big problem. Uh, that's a problem that they've got to deal with in terms of the fan base and in terms of the TV and in terms of all the other stuff because, you know, you're dangerously close to an era when people who are under the age of 30 have never seen a Dodger championship. Last one happened in 1988. You know, how many, how many current Dodgers were alive in 1988. How many how many current Dodgers remember 1988? How many current Dodger fans can you say that about? Yeah, I know. There's lots of teams out there that have longer championship droughts. I mean, right now Cubs fans are screaming at their device, going, "Oh, what about us, asshole?" Well. The Cubs, the Cubs are the Cubs. They're going to be fine. The Cubs will always have their Wrigleyville fan base. The Cubs will always have their, you know, cachet as being, you know, that lovable loser kind of club. Uh, they actually, I, in a lot of respects, I think the Cubs take a big risk by winning. I think they lose some of that. But this isn't about the Cubs. This is about the Dodgers. Okay? The Cubs don't have to win. The Dodgers do. Okay? Chicago is not a fair-weather sports town. Okay? Bears fans are Bears fans. They're not turning on that team. They're not going to go become somebody else's fans just because the team doesn't win. Dodgers fans will be Angels fans in a heartbeat if the Angels win a World Series next year, and the Dodgers don't. Having said that, head into the final segment where it's time to play NFL Mythbuster. Back in a bit. So... I say D, I say D-O, D-O-D-G-E-R-S, the team that's all heart, all heart and all thumbs, they're my Los Angeles, your Los Angeles, our Los Angeles. Last segment we talked about the LA Dodgers, and we've been talking about basic themes back to basics uh, throughout this podcast. You know, the opening 
opening segment, we talk about homerism, the basic theme. Can't we all just get along? Talk about the World Series. Here's a clash of fundamentals. Last segment, the Dodgers, their basic problem is that teamwork and clubhouse chemistry matters. And when we get to the NFL, there's a basic theme here, and, it, and it's, again, it's about fundamentals. In the NFL, fundamentals matter. And they matter more than in just about any other sport, and yet NFL fans have been so dumbed down by fantasy football that they're starting to equate good football teams with guys who perform on their fantasy team. Okay. That means we got a lot of people that watch the NFL and don't really pay attention to actual games. They look at individual player statistics. You know, I mean, after after the first game of the season, there there were guys who were trying to tell me that they think the Tennessee Titans are a playoff team. There were guys trying to tell me after Doug Barton had a 100-yard rushing game that, hey, look out for that Tampa Bay squad. Stop it. Just stop it, okay? Fantasy football is not real football. And, and what wins in fantasy football is not what wins in real football. Last week, a really, really good example of why that is happened. If you had Philip Rivers as your fantasy quarterback last week, you did pretty well. If you were betting money on the San Diego Chargers to win a football game, you didn't. Why? Because Philip Rivers of the San Diego Chargers did something last week that's never happened before. Philip Rivers threw for over 500 yards, didn't commit a single turnover, and his team still lost. Like I said, never happened before. Now, I'm on record for a long, long time and on multiple occasions talking about how the NFL's infatuation with the passing game has transformed the game in the sense that it's, it's helped with the explosion of fantasy football because passing is what drives fantasy football. Um, but when you come down to it, in real football, the fundamentals still matter. What are the fundamentals? The fundamentals are you have a team that can run the ball, and you have a team that can play defense. Based on what the NFL has done with the rules and the way we enforce the rules and just general style of play that's been introduced by various and sundry head coaches, I'm going to add another thing to that fundamentals. Okay, If you want a winning football team, you have to have a team that can run the ball. Have a team that can play defense, or you have to have a quarterback who's so good he breaks those first two rules. Because right now, there's two teams in the NFL 
that are undefeated and can't necessarily run the football and or can't necessarily play defense, but they're probably two of the best teams in the league, and I'm talking about the Green Bay Packers and the New England Patriots. Um, Patriots fans are going to call me up and tell me, well, that defense is actually pretty good. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, that defense made the Indianapolis Colts look respectable, and that's not forgivable. Um, your defense, and you can give me all the static in the world about you know, pass interference penalties and all this sort of stuff. That actually goes back to what I'm talking about, about how the NFL's built this league. But, you know, you gave up 30-some points to the Bills. Um, yeah, you laid a hammer job on the starless Cowboys and the Jacksonville Jags. But that's why I don't buy team statistics. Here's the thing, you know. In the case of both the Patriots and the Packers, they don't really have to deal with those first two fundamentals. I mean, in the case of the Packers, I don't know what's wrong with Eddie Lacy, if he's hurt, if it's the fact that the offensive line's not doing its job, but the Green Bay Packer running game doesn't really exist. And the Green Bay Packer defense, uh, they've got a couple of star players, but they've also got a couple of holes. I mean, they're not terrible, but they're not great. Um they are going to it's going to be interesting when we get further into the season because I think Green Bay versus Denver is going to be one of these really interesting games in the sense that I want to see Aaron Rodgers up against that top flight Denver defense and I want to see what what Peyton Manning does going on the road in cold weather I mean We'll talk about the Denver Broncos in a bit, but when I'm speaking of the Packers, the Packers right now look like they've got the inside rail to the NFC Championship game because they are going to go through a season where they really don't have to play anybody. And of course, you know, here come the Bronco fans. Well, but the Broncos are 6-0. The Broncos are the worst 6-0 team I've ever seen. And, like I said, I'm going to come back to them in a second. With the Patriots, one, I don't buy that defense. Um, and, I, and I don't buy it because, like I said, I, I watched it make the, make the Colts look respectable, and that's, that's a problem. But I also don't buy the Patriots' defense because, and I'm looking for the right way to put this um, they spend too much time on the field and they spend too much time relying on the Donta Hightowers of the world and I've never been a big fan of his one of the great things about Bill Belichick is that he manages to get stuff out of people that you think that he shouldn't get anything out of and that's that's what's largely keeping the Patriot defense afloat but when you look at why the, the Patriots have success over last season through deflate gate into this season, it's got nothing to do with Belichick and his defense. It's got everything to do with Tom Brady. Um, Tom Brady is one of the two quarterbacks in this league that changes the fundamentals. Okay? Like it or not. I mean, you 
all you patriot haters that want to, you know, send me all the cheater bullshit, you know, go right ahead. The fact is, is that Tom Brady wins, and there's there's a reason why he does, and it, it's kind of reflected in something I heard him say the other day that a lot of people laughed at, and that was, you know, Tom Brady talks about, you know, he'd like to play ten more years. And, or, you know, of course, you know, the long knives came out. Yeah, what's this guy talking about? Blah, 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 you know? And it's like, just stop it. When you criticize a guy for saying something like that, what you're telling me is that you don't understand the importance of goals. Okay? Guys like Tom Brady, if you stop and think about it, what's Tom Brady got left to accomplish in the NFL? He's been an MVP, got four Super Bowl rings go into the Hall of Fame, made hundreds of millions of dollars, married a supermodel. Why does he want to spend 10 more years getting his ass handed to him in the NFL? Can't accomplish anything else. The reason is actually pretty simple. It's because he what he does, and he wants to be the best. And the guys that want to be the best are the guys that set goals that sound impossible, sound difficult sound silly even. But the part that you got to understand is that sometimes it's not about achieving the goal. Sometimes it's just about getting to a point that you're not at now. And you go, well, what the hell am I talking about? Okay, nobody, nobody in their right mind thinks it's realistic for Tom Brady to play NFL football until he's 48 years old. That's not happening. But does he want to play till he's 41? Does he want to play till he's 42? To get to 10 years, he's got to get through at least the next three or four. That's a pretty lofty goal for a guy who's already 38 years old. Already had his knee rebuilt once. It's a pretty lofty goal for a guy who's playing behind an offensive line that's right now made up of scotch tape and lunch meat and is still managing to win. What the average football fan, and what the average American for that matter, doesn't realize is that the difference between good and great is very, very small. Good guys, there's good guys everywhere, Okay? But the great guys have that one thing that sets them apart. And in Tom Brady's case, you can say what you want to about Tom Brady, but there's never been a guy who I've seen be more self-motivated than Tom Brady. Tom Brady is Tom Brady because Tom Brady went out and made Tom Brady who he is. Okay? And what is Tom Brady? Tom Brady is one of the top five quarterbacks to ever play in the history of this league. Um, who made that happen? Tom Brady did. Okay, wasn't Bill Belichick, wasn't uh, Lloyd Carr at Michigan, wasn't anybody except Tom Brady. And that happened because Tom Brady is the guy who sets stretch goals like this for himself. Before the Mo Lewis injury, Tom Brady was not a guy sitting on the bench in New England going, yeah, okay, I'll be here for about four years, I'll make a couple million bucks as a backup quarterback, and then I'll go work at my dad's car dealership. You know that wasn't the case, because the minute he got the job, how he got it doesn't matter. Um, but the minute he got the starting job in New England, 
this guy became one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Why? Because he made himself be that way. He's not the most athletic guy in the world, and I don't even think he's the most gifted passer. He certainly is not going to run away from anybody. But you cannot tell me that Tom Brady is not one of the top five quarterbacks in the history of this league. Okay? And the reason why he is is because he sets goals for himself that regular people think are silly. He's not playing ten more years. Well, of course he's not. That's not the point. It's about, it's about getting better. And in order to get better, you don't always have to get to the goal. Okay? When you look at teams that win over a period of time and you look at teams that don't, there's a reason for that. And it's and it's not you can it's easy to say, well, you know, the Patriots are only good because they have Tom Brady. Well, that's a big part of it. But, you know, they could have easily had Tom Brady and could easily have a guy who does not understand how to recognize tel- talent and development like Bill Belichick does. Winning is about culture. Okay? This is the difference between teams like the Patriots and teams like the Jets. The Jets have been losers for 45 years because they don't understand about building a winning culture. Okay? The Patriots have been winners over the last 15 years because they've built a culture of winning, even though I don't know if that culture of winning is going to survive the departure of Brady and Belichick. I don't think it does, but that's a whole other topic. Let's talk about the Patriots and the Jets for a minute, because this this is the part where I wanted to make sure that we dropped this podcast before the NFL action started on Sunday. And a lot of people, whether they're Patriots homers or Jets homers, you know, are not happy with me because, A, I'm saying publicly that despite all of what I just said about Tom Brady and the Patriots, I mean, well, I take that back. What I said about Tom Brady stands. The Patriots are another story because I think the Patriots, while they are undefeated, are a seriously flawed football team. And it revolves around one major thing, okay? Tom Brady means they don't have to deal with the fundamentals, but... It's the offensive line that's why they can't run the football. Um, again, they they used Garrett Blunt and punched him right down the Indianapolis Colts' throat. But you can do that with just about anybody with the Colts. The Colts' defense is, is laughable at best. When the Patriots, so the Patriots don't have to. They don't have to follow the fundamentals. Now, that means that the Patriots' run in the playoffs is going to be how far can Tom Brady take them? Well, Tom Brady can take them all the way. That's why he's one of the two quarterbacks in this league that you should have any faith in. Okay? So, Patriot homers pissed off at me because I said your offensive line sucks. To be fair, they're beat up. What Belichick's done in terms of shifting rookies in and out of those interior line positions, nothing short of miraculous. But the more guys get hurt doing that because you're playing them out of their natural positions, the worse this problem is going to get. And at some point, at some point, the Patriots are going to play a team 
with a pass rush. I mean, yeah, I know you already played Buffalo, but you weren't beat up when you played them. And you got the Jets coming up, and the Jets have a pass rush. And if you can't protect Tom Brady, you're going to have a problem. Don't hear things that I'm not saying either. Am I saying that the Patriots are going to lose that game? No. But when you look at the schedules that the Jets and the Patriots have, and by the way, they're in the same division, so their schedules are pretty much identical, you can make an argument that going forward, the next, the best team that both the Patriots and the Jets play for the rest of the season are each other. Look at their schedules. You know, you know, um, the Jets already lost to Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia's not going to beat New England, so that's 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 why the Patriots are going to win this this division. But you got to look at the Jets right now as a wild card team, and you know, okay, the guy that's going to come tell me, oh, well, you know, you said that, and then the Jets got blown out. Well, yeah, it's whole half of a season to go, and the Jets got a whole lot of Washington and Jacksonville to play. Okay, the Jets don't have that quarterback I'm talking about. What they got is they can run the ball and they can play defense. Okay? And to be honest, there's only three or four teams in the AFC that I give a remote shit about in terms of what are they going to do come playoff time? Are they going to be a team I have to uh, pay attention to? One, obviously the Patriots. Uh, the second one, and I think the team that's playing the best football in the AFC right now, the Bengals. Bengals have a history of not doing well in the playoffs, and in the whole baseball segment, you you heard me talk about how I'm a big believer in playoff and postseason experience. Can't push my chips to the center of the table on the Bengals, but right now, there's nobody in the NFL playing better football, all-around football, than than the Bengals because they can run the football, they can play defense, and they've got a quarterback that they invested some money in who's playing just about as well as you could expect him to. Hard to argue with that. Things go down from there because, yeah, the Colts are probably going to win their division, but the Colts are about the most flawed playoff team I can think of. Uh, you look out west in the AFC where you have Denver. Denver, I mean, yeah, they're 6-0. and Again, worst 6-0 and team I've seen. How long does this Peyton Manning thing last? I mean, Denver can play defense. Don't get me wrong. But they can't run the football, and their alternative is the, you know, aging Peyton Manning who is literally dissolving in front of our eyes. I almost have a feeling in the AFC West, like, the Denver Broncos spotted everybody a four-game lead. Now it's going to be a race to see who can take it away from them. Uh, as laughable as some people may think this sounds, I don't think the Raiders um, are completely out of the picture. I mean, you know, they're the Raiders. They, they, they're not terrible. They're not great. But I don't think it's going to take much to catch the Broncos. Frankly, I think the Chargers have the better shot at doing that. I think there's every chance that that last Charger-Bronco game at the end of the season could really, could really mean something. I, Again, I think the Broncos are ready to fall apart. Why am I telling you all this shit? 
Because when I get to the, the, the homerisms between the Jets and the Patriots, these two fan bases hate each other so much that if I say anything about the other, I get tons of shit. As evidenced by the stack of emails I got out of Patriots fans this week. So, to make this clear, the Patriots will win the AFC East. The Jets will have every shot to be a wild card team because they play fundamental football and they've got a they've got a schedule that's as soft as a sealy posturepedic. I mean, I said that the Buffalo Bills had a shot to be a 10-win team. That's not going to happen. That's going to be the Jets. In fact, Buffalo is the team that I think now has the shot to become the dumpster fire. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But before I get off the fundamentals, there's a couple of things I want to say. I've already said that I think Patriots win the AFC East. That's, that's kind of a sun-comes-up-in-the-morning sort of prediction. Uh, I think the Jets have every shot at a wild-card shot uh, or wild-card slot in the playoffs. Um, but when I talk about teams that can run the football and play defense, and I kind of ran through the picture in the AFC, if you go over and look at the NFC, well, the dumpster fire that is the NFC East... Um, as much as it pains me to say this, I mean the injury to Tony Romo and Des Bryant, those those really kind of kind of hose the the Cowboys, and and with that absence of talent, it means that division's really up for grabs. I mean the the Eagles are in first place right now. Raise your hand if you don't buy them. I don't. I'm raising both my hands. Uh, the Giants, the Giants. Um, Sometimes I wonder if the Giants don't get coaching advice from Rex Ryan because they play dumb football and they they kill themselves with penalties. And we'll come back to the Rex Ryan thing in a second. The team in the NFC that I like the most right now, because I'll be honest, right now in the AFC I like the Patriots the most. And I think they're flawed. In the NFC, the team that I like the most right now, this this particular point in history, Carolina Panthers. Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying that either. There's a there's a stat out there, and I'm not a big believer in this quarterback rating thing. But this season, Cam Newton has a quarterback rating in the fourth quarter of 94.1. That's astounding. And for purposes of full disclosure, this is coming out of a Cam Newton that I swore up and down was never going to be an NFL quarterback. I don't know if I'm to the point now where I'm hearing some of the pointy heads of ESPN start mentioning him in an MVP conversation. We aren't even to week eight in the season. That seems a bit silly. But Cam Newton makes the Panthers for real because they can play defense. That Carolina defense is no joke. But Cam Newton is why they can run the ball. I mean, they are they are running 10 to 15 designed running plays for him a week. 
And while it's the key to their success, I also think that it's it's their fatal flaw. I'm This is the NFL. I'm not a big fan of putting my million-dollar quarterback out there to get killed. Um, I'm, I don't want to make this sound like a comparison because it's not, but, you know, Robert Griffin III kind of tells you what happens to running quarterbacks. Uh, Michael Vick is a guy that's suffered a hell of a lot more injuries than he would have being a pocket passer. Eventually that's going to cost you. And whether it's Cam Newton, whether it's Aaron Rodgers, or whether it's Tom Brady, if you have the vast majority of your offense routed through one player and that guy goes down for whatever reason, you have a problem. Especially in terms of the running game, because if you lose Cam Newton, you just lost your offense. You know, if you have a running back that's carrying the load for you, well, that's not a big problem. But to lose your quarterback and he's your running back, you're screwed. Another thing I wanted to touch on real quick about why fundamentals matter and how quickly by adhering to fundamentals you can change a team is the Miami Dolphins. You look at the Miami Dolphins and the game that got Joe Philbin fired where it was obvious that team had quit. And then they bring in this offensive line coach, uh, Dan Campbell, who um, looks like a weight room guy, looks looks like a fire-em-up sort of guy. Um, and then I hear in practice he's running the Oklahoma drill. Well, if you're not familiar with football, if you don't know what the Oklahoma drill is, the Oklahoma drill is is a glorified game of one-on-one, except it involves four people. What you do is you put a couple of tackling dummies about five yards apart, and you have an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman that get to beat each other silly, and then you have a running back and a linebacker who get to play uh, get to play a one-on-one version of uh, Cream the Carrier. And this game is all about, uh, this drill is all about building toughness. And it works real well in high school. It works real well in college. When I heard Miami was doing that, I went, oh, Jesus, this guy, this guy thinks he's coaching Pop Warner. This, this Miami thing is only going to get worse. And what happened? He told that team we were going to get tough and we were going to get physical, and they went out and they literally manhandled Tennessee. Um, they went from a team that got blown out because they looked like they quit to a team that looked like they wanted to impose as much physical pain on their opponents as they could. That's a dramatic change in a few days. Is it going to matter over the long haul? Probably not because, let's be honest, the Dolphins just don't have a lot of talent. But the one problem that you can say isn't there anymore is that, you know, if that team quit on Joe Philbin, they sure as hell aren't quitting on Dan Campbell. Does that mean he gets the job? Probably not, because he's doing what he was supposed to do. They said, hey, we need to get a guy that can get these guys back on the same page. And while he might be using caveman tactics to do it, hard to argue with a 38-10 score, especially from a team that looked like it had punched out. Now, having said all that, I made a comment earlier about Rex Ryan, and 
here's where some various sets of Homer fans can get their get their crayons ready because there's a couple of coaches in this league that I used to have a lot of respect for and I don't anymore. One of them is Rex Ryan. And a lot of people who know me, who know I've been a Rex Ryan supporter for a long, long time, are going to be surprised to hear that. You're going to be even more surprised to hear who the second name is. And the second name is Bill Belichick. Let me start with Sexy Rexy, okay? In all the time I spent trying to defend Rex Ryan, and in all the time I, I spent trying to say, well, you know, he's a good coach this, he's a good coach that, blah, blah, blah. And I still think he is. The, the problem is, is that he's the wrong kind of coach for the jobs that he's going to get. And what do I mean by that? Okay, Buffalo was a team that was undisciplined and needed a guy who has a completely different management style than Rexy has they needed a guy to come in and be a disciplinarian and be a guy that says, we have bed check at 9.30, we do this, we do that, and if you don't like it, you'll not be on this team. When he signed the guy that broke Geno Smith's jaw in New York, that was a red flag. Uh, and then we had a team that you know racked up 18 penalties in a game against the Giants, and that was another red flag, and I didn't see how important that was because, let's face it, um, everybody gets penalties in the NFL now. We call penalties for everything. Um, when in doubt, throw the flag. It, that's what NFL refs have been taught. So I didn't see the warning signs on the 18 penalties that quickly. But when I'm starting to notice that Rexy can't adapt, and what he's doing is making what's the strength of the Buffalo Bills, and, he, and what he's doing is making that team worse because... They don't need to blitz to get to the quarterback. They've got four great defensive linemen, but Rexy is addicted to blitzing. And he's going to keep doing it, and he's going to keep doing it, and he's going to keep doing it. And what's going to happen is, oh, okay, you're going to blitz these guys, we're just going to kill you with shit underneath. going to kill you with shit underneath. If Rexy doesn't wake up, by the next time they play the Patriots, Gronkowski is going to score about 19 touchdowns against them because every linebacker in Buffalo will be in the Patriot backfield and Gronkowski will be um, with a hibachi making a sandwich in the end zone. And then so, okay, what is it about Rex Ryan that I liked? Well, you know, I mean, as a blogger, he's nothing if not entertaining. He's a never-ending source of material. And then it dawned on me. Gee, here's a guy that's all swagger and, and, and flash and not a whole heck of a lot of substance, and it just it, it hit me. He's John Madden. That's exactly what Rex Ryan is. Rex Ryan is this generation's version of John Madden. And, of course, now Raider fans are going to say, well, but, you know, John Madden won a Super Bowl. Well, if Rexy would have had a Ken Stabler-type quarterback, he'd have won one, too. But he didn't. <coughs> Went to his... Uh, went to his general manager begging for a quarterback, got Tim Tebow. But you stop and think about it. Look at, look at the Raiders of the 70s. A lot of swagger, a lot of flash, a lot of bravado. What's a Rexy team? A lot of swagger, a lot of flash, a lot of bravado. And you look, other than that Super Bowl win under Madden against the Vikings, 
the Raiders were always coming up short against the disciplinarian Chuck Knoll teams, the disciplinarian Don Shula teams. Well, who's the guy that Rex Ryan keeps coming up short against? That would be disciplinarian Bill Belichick. Okay, so now that I've said that, why am I, why am I off the Bill Belichick bandwagon? The answer is actually really simple. Um, if you look back at the Colts game Sunday night, to this day, I can't figure out... Well, let me backtrack a step. Everybody knows about that stupid-ass fake punt. We don't need to get into that. That was, that was the story that the media got to harp on. It was like, this is, was such a dumb coaching move. And Bill Belichick's lucky that that happened because if another thing had happened, we'd be talking about Bill Belichick being a dumb coach because here's the thing. You have three minutes to go in the game. You have the Colts burning up their timeouts. And you are in a situation where if you're the Patriots with two first downs, and the time it will take you to get two first downs, you will be past the two-minute warning. You can, you can take a knee, run out the clock. You don't ever have to give the Colts the ball back. And remember, it's only a two-score game at this point. It's three minutes to go. Okay? So, you don't get the first down you need because you've been running the ball between the tackles with Garrett Blunt, and then all of a sudden we start running off tackle and... Even even the slow, useless Colts diagnose this, run the play down, stretch it out, not going anywhere. You kept doing it. So you had to punt. Okay? Punt. What happens? Colts damn near score. They they get well into Patriot territory before they finally pull a three and out. And, uh, you know, they go for it on fourth down. Patriots get the ball back. Um, so what do the Patriots do? Again. They're running off tackle instead of pounding it up the middle. And again, they've got a punt. This time, the Colts score. And even with that, uh, you know, incredible hurdling block the extra point shot, still only a seven-point ball game. And there's plenty of time left on the clock. Now, if the Colts had come up with that onside kick and then had scored, and all of a sudden, a game that the Patriots had a comfortable two-score lead in changes directions in under three minutes. Does Bill Belichick get, get called out for that? No, he probably doesn't because there's this myth of Bill Belichick's infallibility. This is why nobody ever paid attention to the fact that that exact let's-get-conservative-at-the-wrong-time approach is why the Patriots lost those two Super Bowls to the Giants. You know, you can point at the Mario Manningham catch. You can catch. Uh, you can point at uh, uh, David Tyree's helmet catch. But the reason why those happened is because the Patriots gave the ball away, didn't get first downs when they needed them, and when they got those first downs, they could have run time off the clock. Nobody ever calls Belichick out for that, and he's doing it again. And so. When I compared Rex Ryan to John Madden, I think that there's a lot of ways that you can compare Bill Belichick to Don Shula. What do I mean by that? Don Shula made 
the big accomplishments in his career early. That's when the Super Bowl wins were. That's when the undefeated team was. And then he spent two decades plus just racking up win totals, okay? And when he had the great teams of the 70s, like I said, that's when the championships came. And then he had his Hall of Fame quarterback, which he never won with, but, you know, that is what got him to 300 and however many wins he racked up as an NFL head coach. And in a lot of respects, that's what Belichick's done for the last 10 years, is that he's kind of ridden Tom Brady's coattails to racking up these win totals and not really winning anything. Now, you can say, well, you know, they won the Super Bowl last year, um, and we all know that last year's Super Bowl championship uh, at the hand for the Patriots, that was all about Tom Brady. That was about Tom Brady playing out of his mind and taking a team that really doesn't have a lot of talent to the promised land. And if you want to talk about how much the success of the Patriots is about Tom Brady and less about Bill Belichick, ask yourself a question. Look at teams that have been to or won four Super Bowls. So that means you're talking about the Vikings, the Bills, the Cowboys, the teams like the Steelers. How many guys off those teams are now or will be in the Hall of Fame? And then ask yourself the question, how many Patriots from this era are going to be in the Hall of Fame? Okay? And I'm not counting like Junior Seau or guys like that that, you know, made brief stops in New England. I'm talking about guys that had Hall of Fame careers as Patriots. The list starts getting slim after Tom Brady. Okay? Now, am I saying that I don't think Bill Belichick's a pretty damn good coach? I think he is. I have already said that He's a guy that knows how to get stuff out of people that nobody else would have got, and he's got an, a talent for spotting people that he can do that with. Now, of course, you can point out the Albert Haynesworths of the world, but, you know, when you're a guy like Belichick and you're going to do that sort of thing, you've got to take risks. Every once in a while, one's going to blow up in your face. But when I see a guy like Belichick continuing to make the same mistakes that have cost him before, kind of told me that the success of the Patriots has a hell of a lot more to do with Tom Brady than it does Bill Belichick. So, can't wait for the next round of uh, emails I get from homers from all sorts of teams this week. But with that, that's that's pretty much the end of this podcast. Uh, disagree with me on what I've said about Rex Ryan, uh, Bill Belichick, Don Mattingly, the Dodgers, all the big topics that we hit in today's podcast, hit me up, dubsism.wordpress.com. That's where you can find the blog. It has a great big comic section just waiting for you to tell me what an idiot I am. At dubsism on Twitter, we've got the Pinterest page. We are on Instagram, Tumblr, you name it, we're out there. Come find me. Email address, dubsism at yahoo.com. Next week, 
brings us another episode of uh, Radio J-Dub, and I have a feeling that we may have to have a fan email segment, because some of these from last week are too good. Some of the ones I know I'm going to get promise to be even better. So come back next week, see how many people in greater Boston, New York, threaten my life. That's always fun. Until then, bye. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Let me be your hog! For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.